This is the Dallas Morning News. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hello, everybody. Welcome into Sports Day Insider presented by the Dallas Morning News. I am Kevin Sherrington, joined not only by my old pals Evan Grant and David Moore, but also Callie Kaplan, who's stopping in to talk a little bit about all the Mavs news lately. Uh, Kyrie Irving, the acquisition, and now his first home game as a Maverick, which ended pretty much like his first road game uh, or, or second road game with the Maverick. Uh, golly, Callie. What's the deal with these endings with the Mavericks anyway? I think it's going to be a, a game of no, you take it. No, you take it. No, you take it. Now that Luca, the first time he tried it, took it and it didn't work. Um, but I think that's just the the most obvious sign of the room that they have to grow and the chemistry and the timing, and the, the unspoken tendencies that they're going to have to work out over the next bunch of weeks. I thought that was so crazy in that game last night that uh, that Kyrie pretty much for three quarters looked like he was just coasting through the game, you know, standing in the corner with his hands on his knees and, and watching what's happening. And then when uh, Jason Kidd gave uh, Luka Doncic his customary time off to start the fourth quarter, the guy just blew up. Uh, and next thing you know, the Mavericks are erasing what had been a 26-point deficit. Do you think – that in any way he is still trying to adjust to playing with Luca's style and and uh, I, as I would describe it, a painstaking style at times. Oh, I definitely do, and it's funny because last night, like you said, I in like halftime into the third quarter, I went back to go and find a quote from Jason Kidd pregame that was like, "Kyrie has the right to be tired." I was like, "Oh yeah, this guy's tired. Like he's just not doing it tonight." Um, and then I never used that quote because the fourth quarter came, but it's, it, I think it's going to take an adjustment. And he said last night that he's still learning Luca's pace. I think Luca's rotations where he plays the entire first quarter and the entire third quarter are different than some NBA superstars. And I haven't actually gone back to look at what Kyrie's typical rotations in Brooklyn were probably because he just <laughs> rarely ever played long enough that he d- probably did have typical rotations. But I, I'm sure it does differ in how he plays alongside Luca, how he plays, when he plays, you know, what kind of stretches he plays for. And so, like, Jason Kidd has called it a dress rehearsal. And he did the same thing last year. But I think this year it's really is a dress rehearsal where they have, I believe, 23 games until the playoffs. And all 23 of those are going to be experimental at some point. Do you feel like that um, the rest of the roster – is obviously making an adjustment to this as well. I mean, you know, Theo Pinson's getting, you know, court time. JaVale McGee's getting court time. Um, is there a feeling on this team? I, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm reading too much into it. I think it was Josh Green who said something along the lines of, you know, he you know, he really gets everybody involved. And it's like, well, that's what Luka Doncic's job is as well. Do you feel like that maybe they're, they're, what they're seeing is, is that uh, this is more like the basketball that they either grew up playing or or have played throughout their careers, and so therefore maybe it's maybe giving them a little juice. 
Absolutely, because the reason that Luca is so good is because he plays unlike anybody else, and that includes the pace and the way he sets up in the post and the way he handles isolations. And it's as much as he revolves his game around driving and getting his teammates open and, and opening looks from three, like it is a very heliocentric style. And so I think you saw when Kyrie first came, those first two games against the Clippers and the Kings, it almost looks like a seamless transition because I think the way he plays naturally suits like Josh Green's game. And now that Josh Green has a bigger role, which is very well deserved, they can they can play off each other and it's much faster and there's a lot of ball movement and there's a lot of cutting. Um, and so I think that there's, you know, a natural learning curve that Luke is going to take with them. He's going to have to unlearn some of the single superstar tendencies that he learned where he's got to take really tough shots at any given time. And I also think that's why you see like Josh, Jason Kidd pairing Josh Green and Kyrie Irving's minutes together in the rotation. And then usually Luca and Jaden Hardy have been kind of the, the two ball handler rotations they've gone with uh, until the fourth quarter. And so, again, it, it's, it's, it's interesting, but I do think that you're reading into it, right. And that there is a different energy around the team and it, that's definitely not to say that they're happy to see like Dorian Finney-Smith and Spencer Dinwiddie go because those guys were so, so crucial to the locker room and the the general vibe around the team at any given time. But I think that, you know, new roles and, and new rotations and just some new energy about their playoff prospects has gone a long way. You know, Kelly, I, d- I don't want to dismiss the, the Mavericks losing these two games with the both times they've been on the floor because things are so tied in the West and this has, you know, could have significant implications come later in the season with seeding. But do you also get the sense the way the Mavericks have lost these final two games, it's even more encouraging to Jason Kidd and his staff on how this is going to work long-term because you have two stars here that seem to be perfectly willing to defer to each other and not step on the other's toes. And, so often in these situations, someone wants to come in and just establish themselves immediately. And while you may be better short term, that doesn't mean you're necessarily better long term. Is is there a sense you think from Jason Kidd that, no, this, this is what I want to see for the chemistry going forward here? Oh, absolutely. And he said that he said the same things after each game where he wasn't upset that Luca took that tough shot uh, in Sacramento because I think he knew that Luca knew he should have passed and he should have made the read to Kyrie and he didn't even need to say that. And same thing yesterday. I think if you're not going to have Luca take a tough shot, then the best outcome that you can have besides actually making the shot and sending it to overtime would be to, to see both of them want the other one to have the shot and, and want the other one to succeed and want to make the right play so badly that they don't make the right play um, is probably the best outcome that you can have again, besides winning the game. Um, but you're right. Like the, the West standings are ridiculous. Um, by losing to Sacramento, you lose the chance to tie them in wins and move into a tie for third place, which is big. That's, you know, the incremental steps they want to take up the standings. And by losing to Minnesota, you lose the season head to head regular season tiebreaker. And so if you're tied with Minnesota in the standings, which you're only a half game apart now, even though they entered yesterday in fourth and eighth, um, you know, Minnesota gets the seeding over you. And so that could come into play if you lose a couple more games like this and you're on that bubble of six or the play-in tournament. And so definitely these are all games that they want to be winning, but that doesn't mean that there weren't promising signs at the end too. And in what sense do you get to as far as, as uh, you know, coming into this, 
Luka's been one of the most efficient and productive first quarter players in the league. Kyrie, one of the most efficient and productive fourth quarter players. You like to see that and you go, okay, well, that's a good starting point. But you also just don't want them to fall into those roles either, right? And, and so I guess, I mean, that that's something else to work through too. Have you gotten a sense on how the, the coaching staff use that and if they want to move the needle a little bit in both of those areas? I think that they do want to experiment with seeing how Luca might play different first quarter rotations and how his fourth quarter minutes might change. But I don't think we'll see that until after the all-star break, um, obviously because they only have one game left, but also because I think that's going to give them time to talk to those guys more, figure out what they do and don't like together and have at least a small sample size of them playing together to kind of be able to understand where they want to pick their first spots to tweak things. Um, but Luca really enjoyed watching Kyrie in the fourth quarter last night. I think everybody did, but Luca, that was a game where before Kyrie, Luca probably would have played straight through the entire second half because that's typically what they do um, with him when it's a relatively close game and they're losing or they're trying to hang on to a lead and it's not going well. And so he got to sit for his regular fourth quarter minutes about five of them in the beginning of the fourth quarter. And by then I think Kyrie had like 21 points by the time he checked back in in the fourth quarter. So he said he was sitting on the bench, like thinking this guy's insane. How does he do it? And so you can count Luka Doncic among the fans. That was very happy to see Kyrie take over in the fourth quarter last night. I wonder if we're going to see this roller coaster for a while, you know, the, the Sacramento game that the 16, two run right before the half that got them back the lead in that game before they ultimately lost that in overtime. And then last night, you know, uh, for most, you know, they, they took all the the buzz out of the crowd with such a, a poor performance. They're getting killed on the boards uh, as usual, and then they're giving up what I uh, like the, the Timberwolves were shooting sixty percent. Most of that because of all the traffic in the lane. They weren't shooting well from three. They were just getting whatever they wanted inside and really just killing the Mavs at that point. And so I'm thinking, and I even had this in my column for a little while, uh, that it's just the same old stuff with the Mavericks, you know. You can do all you want to with this, you know, twin all-star backcourt, but that's not making up for the other deficiencies that the Mavericks have. And then they almost did that, you know. If uh, if they if uh, you know, besides the, the last play, we saw that as you pointed out in your story, uh, you know, Luca had two turnovers and and Kyrie had the very last one in the last minute and a half. You know, if those guys don't commit those three turnovers in the last minute, you know, maybe they pull out that game, which they had no business winning uh, to begin with. I th- yeah, I think it's really interesting that after the game, Jason Kidd was like, no, like, I'm not worried about our defense at all. You know, this is the NBA. People come to see points, you know, not 80 to 80. And part of me thought he was joking. But then <laughs> I was like, because, you know, what changed literally in the last two weeks, much less last year when defense was like the only thing that he would ever talk about. And then part of me was like, well, like on the road trip, somebody asked him about the defense, you know, and losing Dorian Finney-Smith. And he said like multiple times, he's like, we're going to have to score 130 or 140 a night. Like that might be our best defense. And I was like, maybe this guy's not joking. Maybe this is, you know, a little bit of sarcasm, but not really. And so I saw fans being like, this guy has to be joking. I think jury's still out, but they're probably going to have to put up like 125 plus every night. Um Maybe that changes and maybe things stabilize a little bit when Maxi Kleba gets back and is able to to be that defensive anchor. But what nobody says when they talk about Maxi coming back and he hopes to be back right after the All-Star break is, you know, this guy coming off a hamstring surgery two months ago, exactly today, December 14th, 
you know, he's not going to play 35 minutes a game when he gets back. He's not going to be a starter because he wasn't when he went out. They still have to monitor his minutes. And it's like he can't cover all five positions at any given time. And so he's going to help a lot. And I think he'll help, especially if they pair his rotation minutes with Christian Wood again uh, to kind of mask some of his defensive deficiencies. But I really don't know that Max he's like the cure-all answer for the defense. And so maybe we do see the swings uh, back and forth and with the Mavs falling down a lot or the Mavs going up a lot and then their defense kind of giving things up. But I also think that the the sample size that we have comes with some caveats. The first game, Luke and Kyrie played together. It was the second night of a back-to-back against the same team they had played less than 24 hours earlier. Second game was after a five-game road trip. And so just naturally – it's kind of an adjustment period. And then the third game that they'll play on Wednesday night against Denver is in the altitude. And so things might be a little bit different. And knowing Luca just missed over a week with a, with his heel injury, maybe his conditioning is not where you love it to be when they do play in the altitude. So I think after the all-star break, when we get a few more games to kind of evaluate what they're doing, we'll have a better sense of how stable they may or may not be. What do you think the rotation might end up being when Maxi gets back? He'll definitely be the first forward off the bench if they want to go small and really go for that scoring sense. And he's a very good rim protector, too, on defense. I think he could be the first center off the bench. I think they'll keep starting Dwight Powell because he just he fits with Luka, and that's just kind of been their MO. And I think that it'll be interesting, and I'm not sure exactly how this will go because I did not see JaVale McGee going from DNPs to you know, first center, first reserve off the bench uh, for the last week. But I think it'll be interesting to see whether Christian Wood jumps back ahead uh, and pairs with Maxi Kleber or whether Christian Wood's role kind of gets diminished as they do try and find a little bit of uh, defensive traction in the front court. That'd be interesting. Christian Wood's. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that'd be interesting. Christian Wood's uh, uh, minutes diminishing. That doesn't. <laughs> That doesn't pretend very well for uh, for uh, him sticking around. We, we, we've been so concentrating on Kyrie Irving uh, signing a, a deal after this season. Uh, Christian Woods up too. This is kind of kind of a couple of little things here to, delicately to balance. Uh, Kyrie, we're going to put you on a on a, a limb out here and say which of these two guys is going to be on the Mavericks long term. <laughs> that is uh, that question's asking a lot. Uh, I will say that I would be wildly surprised if they offer Christian Wood an extension before the end of the season because they didn't offer him one before the trade deadline, wanting to be able to move him and consider him, um, you know, an, an expiring contract if they needed. They did not find a match, even though they they tried to find a little bit of value out there for him. I think that if they did offer him a contract extension, that would totally go against what their plan A and plan B with Kyrie is. I think plan A would be to keep Kyrie. He didn't give up two of your starters and a future draft pick when unprotected, when Luka Doncic isn't going to be under contract just to rent this guy for three months and see if, you know, he could have a fun time with Luka. Um, They're going to want him back unless things go completely haywire, which is a solid caveat given his track record. But um, it, and re-signing Christian Wood to an extension before free agency and before you have clarity on what's going to happen with Kyrie would completely negate plan B, which is cap space, and to try and pursue somebody with cap space afterwards. If you don't get Kyrie or Kyrie leaves to go to the Lakers or the Suns or wherever those rumored places are that he might want to be instead. And so um, 
it's not saying Christian Wood won't be back. I think that the market may not be as lucrative as his camp may expect it to be. And if he does want to play winning basketball, most of the teams with cap space right now for next summer are not winning basketball teams. Um, so if I had to guess, say Christian Wood would be back, but it's not going to be until a free agency decision with Kyrie. I will never make a guess about that guy because I <laughs> truly could not tell you after one week. <laughs> yeah, it's been interesting, hasn't it? Uh, he's uh, he's made quite an impact on the team so far. Uh, I don't think there's any question about that. And it does look awfully fun at times on the court. Uh, a little curious. But, I, you know, these are things that you you would have to expect as well. I mean, you can't just bring a guy in, drop him in, and expect everything just to be great right away. It's been pretty good. Uh, and at times been uh, pretty fantastic. So we'll, we'll see where it goes from here and see if he minds his P's and Q's and everything goes off as well. Callie, we're going to let you go. Thanks for coming by and, and talking to us. We'd love to have you back sometime soon. So we'll, uh, we'll see you maybe after the All-Star break, huh? Sounds good. Thanks, you guys. See ya. Thanks. All right, it's great to have Callie on. We we always love to have these outsiders come in and, and give us a little information because we're, we're just so cloistered, just the three of us. We have this own little world that we live in and we don't really care about anybody else. Callie works for Sports opinions. Day. I, don't, I wouldn't necessarily call her an outsider. I mean, she's a teammate. Evan, you're the one that didn't want her on the podcast. Yeah. I believe I coordinated <laughs> all of that. Oh, I'm just yeah, oh, yeah, that's okay. me. I am I am the offensive coordinator. Oh yeah, I have as much this responsibility. This wouldn't wouldn't be distance if it weren't for you. Oh my gosh, here we go. Here I we have go. as much offensive responsibility as uh, Brian Schottenheimer. <laughs> Evan, I think you're highly offensive. Thank you, Kevin. <laughs> yeah. All right, so let's talk about the Rangers uh, now. They're getting Evan. You are speaking of spring- offensive. You're in the house that we are going to be staying in. Is it a nice place? Uh, it's 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 very nice, Kevin. Yeah, we uh, we we've we've lucked out this year. Thankfully, um, Paul Luna, our office manager, um, has uh, come to the rescue again and and got us a great house. And I know all the listeners and readers out there are concerned, but yeah, there's a foosball table and a ping pong table. Wow, I can just kick your butt. Uh, I guess though, I'm not going to overlap with you that much, though. That's the unfortunate thing. It, it'll be. It, it, we'll have. We'll have nothing but uh, what a but a good time for that one night we overlap, Kevin. Yeah. Oh, yeah. let me ask you Kevin's this request. You asked what his schedule was, and then suddenly go, <laughs> "Oh, well, yeah. these are the only dates I can do." Oh, look, yeah. I only overlap for twelve hours with. Evan. Exactly. You know, Evan and I had the, 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 one of my favorite moments of spring training was once we came back from dinner and we were parked in the garage and I put my hand on the doorknob to go into the house. And I should have known by the fact that the doorknob was so hot that there was something the matter here. And perhaps I should not open this door. Uh, but I did. And it was only like 120 degrees in the, it was 102, in the house. Kevin. That's what the thermometer, that's what the thermostat actually read 102. Yeah, that which was I know because one. it only showed O2 because the thermostat doesn't go to three. Only <laughs> I was going to say, I wouldn't think of it. <laughs> and the best part about the whole thing, too, was Evan's conversation with the woman who uh, was, I guess, the uh, who was managing the place uh, at that point. Uh, she wanted to know what, what we expected her to do about it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was some good stuff. It was a nice night. You know, slept with the windows open. It was really good. 
I didn't sleep that night because you know it's Arizona, and I was con- I was deathly concerned that there was going to be a snake or a scorpion in my bed. <laughs> oh man, that's a great place, that Arizona surprise, Arizona. You can't beat it. All right, uh, so the so we're gonna talk a little bit about uh, what the we expect to see from the Rangers this year, and we're gonna narrow it down today anyway to production at third base shortstop second base and left field because those were black holes for parts of last season obviously Marcus Simeon really came around after about oh June and played very well and hit very well um but he really struggled up to that point uh, Corey Seager did not really round out into what we expected him or what the Rangers certainly expected when they gave him that gargantuan contract uh all year long uh third base a multitude of players played there. He ended up with Josh Young. And in left field, also a multitude of players, in which I believe, Evan, they had the lowest uh, OPS in baseball in left field, did they not? Well, yeah, let's let's start with all the corrections of um, Kevin's inaccuracies. Um, but you were <laughs> – you did get that one right. They well, first have- we just narrowed this down to eight positions on the field. So after that, let's take it from there. Evan. Yeah, there was just four. Just let's just four. narrow it down here. Let's I, I, only talk about the entire infield. Sec- I just don't know that I would call second base or shortstop black holes at any point in time last season. They may not have performed to to what they're. they're- That's not a correction. That's just your opinion. To wow, what their that career was a black hole numbers were. <laughs> but um, as far as left field goes, you did actually get that one right. They were dead last in OPS from left field. They used 13 different starting left fielders. Um, and it's the one position that really they haven't addressed this offseason with any significant uh, newcomers. Um, and, and so I, I think that when you take those four positions and, and you look at them, I think there's there's two different there's two different elements here. One is you'd like to see – in year two, Seeger and Simeon kind of get back to the career performances that they had put up previous to last year, which was by all stretches, um, especially for new guys coming into new situations. Um, it was it was a hard dynamic to to really get your arms around. Um, and then when you look at left field and third base, those have been really. Uh, They've been vacuums there uh, offensively over the last, well, since Adrian Beltre retired at third, in, in 2018 at third base. And really for the last almost a decade now in left field, which, which is really astounding to consider that the Rangers have not developed a left fielder in a decade. It, it, it's not on the, you would not think of it as one of the more difficult positions to uh, develop a player. But I, I think that says a little bit about why this team has, has had six consecutive losing seasons. But all right, so let's let's go there to to left field and third base. Left field is going to be an ongoing story all spring. Uh, I think the Rangers' best hope there is to put together some kind of platoon. Uh, you've got Josh Smith uh, on the left side. You've got Bubba Thompson on the right side. You've got Clint Frazier on the right side. You've got Brad Miller on the left side, uh, and you've got Zeke Duran as a right-hander also. So there's there's really five guys there that you could try and pick two guys from to, to get a platoon out of. And I, I, I think, look, what the Rangers are looking for there is to get somewhere close to league average as opposed to the 577 OPS they produced from, from left field last year. So if they get if they get a 650 to 700 OPS from left field, 
uh, for the first half of this year, it's going to be a marked improvement over last year. Uh, third base was 26th in the league in OPS last year, and clearly they have very high hopes for Josh Young. You and I have talked about this, Kevin, and in, in, in how much we feel like uh, Josh is an advanced hitter, and even though he struggled in those three weeks he was up last year, that he should be able to put some of that struggle to work for him this spring. I think the interesting thing to watch this spring is, you know, I've had one interaction with Marcus Simeon and Corey Seager in the offseason. And in both occasions, both guys looked exceptionally and sounded exceptionally more relaxed and comfortable. And I think if that carries over to the field, you're going to see two guys work together better in the middle infield, which was a real struggle for them at times last year. And I think you're going to see guys get back to closer to their offensive um, uh career trajectories so if those so last year they were ninth in the in the league in ops correct they were yeah they were ninth in the american league in ops um at like 698 you know they were fifth and run scored but but ninth in ops so uh yeah i, I do think if, if you could get something out of seager and simeon more like what they have done historically more like what they have done across the course of a season i, I think it I think the fact that they were just so bad coming out of the gate. Uh, uh, what Simeon hit his first home run win in May, Marcus, May thirty first, back on yeah, MLK yeah, Day, May thirty first. Um, here's the interesting thing about Academy Simeon. And, you know, he talked a little bit about, about this off season, and this is really the first time in his career that he spent an off season in town and had a number of teammates to work with and all the support staff to work. And you think about it, you know, he, he lived in Oakland and he, he trained at the Coliseum, but very few players uh, stayed in the Bay Area during the offseason when he was with Oakland. And a lot of their support staff went to Arizona where they actually had, you know, better facilities at that point in time. So if you put that together and, and go back to his career kind of uh, track record of really slow starts, Maybe the situation is better primed for him to get out to a fast start, and if he does, and that carries over with what he with what he did over the last four months of last year, you're talking about the kind of season he put up in 2021. When look, the first part of that Tampa Bay season, uh, that the first part of that Toronto season, they hit a lot of times in minor league ballparks, and and so maybe those numbers were a little bit inflated by hitting in a minor league ballpark, but. I think you could see those kinds of numbers on a more legitimate basis this year based on, on just on, on a more structured, uh, situated off-season off routine. You brought up the, the, about the fact that the Rangers' inability to find a left fielder. You know, it's really, when, when you look at it, uh, Joey Gallo was a two-time All-Star, so I'm going to give them credit for developing him no matter whatever deficiencies that Joey had, uh, he was a success story. Uh, and, and, and certainly uh, they have, they kind of stumbled upon their, their right fielder. Uh, and, and that was uh, something that was not really expected uh, what they were able to do at, at that position, either with Abdullah Garcia. Um, but to not be able to come up with an everyday outfielder, just a guy who at least could hit, you know, you're not asking a guy to be a gold glove outfielder, just, just a hitter, you know, just, just, just give me a hit tool package. 
which is uh, obviously, it, you know, it, it's a little bit harder to come by that than it has been. But the Rangers haven't done <clears throat> that in 10 years, um, maybe longer than that. No, it's, it, it, they have they have been poor when it comes to developing outfielders. And look, Joey, Joey, in my mind, is a a solid everyday player. Um, he's more of a right fielder and profiles as a right fielder defensively because of that arm. And so, if you want to give them credit for developing an outfielder, that's fine. Um, Garcia was a was a pickup from from St. Louis. Uh, it was a good pickup uh, and. They've certainly gotten gotten a player who seems driven to be the best version of, of himself. I was I, I think for me the most encouraging thing about Adolis last year was that every number offensively across the board increased. His walk totals went up, his walk percentage went up, his strikeout percentage went down, his on base percentage went up. It was marginal, but his on base percentage went up, and and so. Yeah, it was a great find and a good scouting decision and and all of that, but he certainly wasn't developed by the Rangers. Um, and one outfielder in a decade, and, and the jury is still out on Leody Tavares, one outfielder in a decade does not a development program make. And I, it's just again one of the you know one of the symptoms of why this team has had six consecutive losing seasons. You've got to develop some players. Pitching may be developed. Pitching may be hard to develop, and it may be um, it may be more difficult than other in, than other positions. But if you develop position players, you've got some equity to trade for pitchers when you need it. And the Rangers just haven't done either. And that's where I think maybe the path is starting to to change a little bit. This is a it's a top ten minor league system. I, I think we related the story sometime in the last few weeks when I did look around at their leadership development camp a couple of weeks ago, and I saw Evan Carter and Aaron Zavala and Dustin Harris, all three outfield prospects, all three guys that I, I really could envision playing in the big leagues, and all guys who are, I think the thing that's most important about this, Kevin, is like these guys have gone to leagues and thrived. I think the thing that stuck out about the development program for me is the cases of guys like really dominating minor league levels at which they were in were very few and far between. And I feel like they just got promoted because that was the thing to do. You just kept moving guys along, but nobody went out and dominated leagues in which they played. Yeah, I, actually it's been a long time since I've seen that with the Rangers. I, you know, for whatever, it just pops into my head of Rusty Greer. You know, Rusty dominated at every level. He was not a guy who was a great athlete or anything, but they he just played so well in the minor leagues, they felt like they had to bring him up, you know, uh, and they had to play. Uh, and so, you know, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm with you 100% on that. They just like, why why would we think Leody Tavares was going to come up to the major leagues and, and suddenly hit very well? He never hit the minor leagues. Right, Let's, and I mean, that, I, like, Leody's a great example, and maybe he will maybe he will develop, but this is a guy who had a 700 or, or less than 700 OPS for most of his minor league career. You can't expect that guy to come up to the big leagues and all of a sudden jump his OPS by 50 points. Now, he's a really good defender, and he's got a real weapon in uh, in his feet, and so the sliding scale for what makes him a productive player OPS-wise is in effect, but he hasn't been as good as you'd like to see him on the base pass. And again, that's one of those things that 
that traditionally you can finish off a guy in the minor leagues uh, at base running. That's a, that's a skill you can really kind of finish a guy off with at the minor league level. And I just think that one of the, one of the, uh, one of the habits the Rangers got into that was poor was they just kept moving, they, they just kept moving guys along for no reason other than, well, a year has passed. We need to move them along or we need to say we're getting some guys to the big leagues. And they got guys to the big leagues. They just didn't produce at the big league level. All right. Uh, we do think they're going to be better. The pitching certainly should be better. It has a lot to do with their health. But these guys, when healthy, have track records of being very good pitchers. Uh, so uh, the fact that uh, Chris Young has piled up so many starting pitchers certainly uh, will give Rangers fans hopes that, that it's going to be a lot better there. But other teams do things as well. Uh, the, the rest of the West wasn't just sitting around. So, Evan, let's kind of take a look here at what you could expect, what you could reasonably expect the Rangers to do uh, uh, this season. So, uh, the Astros lost Justin Verlander uh, to the Mets. That's a big loss. Uh, But they went out and added another starter. Uh, Where do you expect the Astros to be? Do Do you think they're still the team to beat in the West? The Astros aren't going anywhere. You know, and again, it goes back to this whole thing of, Look at their core of position players. And, I mean, it extends to the rotation as well. But, uh, listen, the Rangers got Adolis Garcia from, from St. Louis. The Astros somehow got Jordan um, Alvarez from the Dodgers. Uh, the Astros have developed Kyle Tucker. They developed Alex Bregman. They developed Jose Altuve. Um, this, is, this is a team that's got its core in place and under control and then you start going to the pitching staff of guys that they developed and who are now under control long-term, like Valdez and, and Javier, and I don't anticipate the Astros going anywhere. It uh, doesn't mean they can't be beat, but you're going to have to track them down and beat them. They are not a significantly lesser team than they were a year ago when they were, when they were the world champions. Um, I think the same kind of goes for Seattle. Seattle's only gotten better, and again, it's a team – with a a fairly young and under control nucleus, um, I think Julio Rodriguez maybe he has some degree of a sophomore slump, but he's he is a dynamic player, and he is the kind of player you build around. And so I I don't think Seattle is going anywhere. So if, if if I'm if I'm looking at the pecking order, I think you can't pick the Rangers better than third to start the year. But I don't think that mean I don't think it doesn't mean. The Rangers can't track these teams down. But in terms of talent, while the Rangers are significantly improved, I still think that they fall uh, below the Astros and the Mariners going into the season. Yeah, I, I would say so, too. I, I, I do think that the Rangers can catch the Angels. I don't think that that's a, a big jump. Uh, the Angels still have a lot to prove as well, uh, just like the, the Rangers do. But, you know, they've got uh, the two best players in the game. And, and when you've got that, it's, it's, it's always a nice start. Um, and I, I, they've, they've gotten – they've added some players this offseason. I do think one thing that worked in the Rangers' favor is they kind of spun their wheels a little bit during this period where Artie Moreno was going to sell the team, and then he decided, ah, no, I'll just keep it. And if they had been a little bit more aggressive this winter – Maybe they could, if, if, if Artie had committed more money this winter, maybe they could have gone out and gotten a couple of even bigger names. But but they didn't, and so I think that they're still playing from behind where the rest of 
where, where the Astros and the Mariners are, are considered as, concerned as well. So what do we think is a reasonable uh, goal here? Since we're going to spring training, we're going to start with our first uh, pick for a number of wins. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go first here. I'm going to say I, I think the Rangers can win 82 games. That's that's a big jump, uh, but I think 82 is is doable. I, I Listen, I think that depending on who you talk to in the Rangers organization, um, they would actually say anywhere from 82 to 85. Nobody's going to pick um, 500 or below uh, when, when it's that close. So um, I think they would they would say 82 to 85, and I think they feel like they've got a shot if these if these guys stay healthy to inch closer to 90 wins. And and if they're if they're in the 90 win range, um, they're going to be they're going to be in, in in the playoff conversation. And you know I was having a conversation with a Rangers person yesterday. And we went through this the same exact exercise, Kevin. And my my answer to him was we can we can throw out the number of wins that we think you'll end up with, but I think the more important question to answer is how many wins do you have at the all-star break? Because that's gonna determine just how serious this team is about using its capital to go out and acquire, you know, a real difference maker um at, at, at the trade deadline. That for me will determine ultimately whether this team ends up with low 80s or whether it starts to push 90 in terms of wins. And and that's always the crossroads, right? Because a lot of years after a slow start, who you thought was going to be a big part of it and you're developing, they come to the conclusion, well, it's not happening, so let's move on like you were talking about. And so that's why, I mean, to me, that's the crossroads. And it, it's not just it's not just how many at the end, it's how many in this case on a team that's trying to build in the beginning. Well, uh, and, and it's because it's a team, David, that obviously we, we've stated this over and over that while it's significantly better, there are still holes to fill on this team. Yeah. It will go into the season knowing it probably has some holes. Now, maybe these guys look Zeke Duran. He's still learning the outfield. He's got a lot of noise in his bat and perhaps he, he really shoots up or maybe Evan Carter goes out as a 20-year-old and absolutely dominates after he's had a little bit of experience at double A. And that could change the dynamics some. But I think as we go into the season, that's the reason that the also that the trade deadline is such a big question because I think you know going into the season, there is an area on this team that is markedly lesser than league average. All right, boys, that's gonna do it for our Rangers uh segment today. You didn't ask David how many games they were gonna win, Kevin. David doesn't even know how many games they play. David, I, I think, I think Kevin goes under the assumption that I am clearly below league average and didn't <laughs> want to ask me that question. <laughs> David, how many wins do you think? I say seventy-eight to eighty-two in that okay. range, and I All certainly right. understand. Whenever you're talking right around five hundred, no one in the organization is going to take the under, right? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, uh, I, I do think that's the – I think they're right right in that range, which is uh, a significant jump and should give them the platform to then really go from there going forward. And, and I, yeah, I would let's just say this. this. The one thing I would say is, look, this team won 68 games last year um, in, in the standings, but we know what a poor record they had in one-run games, and that fluctuates wildly from year to year. And if you go by the Pythagorean theorem – uh, as applied to baseball, the Pythagorean Wind Index, this was a 73 to 75 win team last year. 
So I think, again, 78 to 80 is very realistic. And I don't think it's out of I don't think it's out of the realm of possibilities to think that they could get to 85 or above. Boy, whenever we start talking about Pythagorean theorems and stuff like that, they give me the it's they time give me to the move on. GB guy. <laughs> I, that's I, I majored in journalism just so I wouldn't have to do any math. So uh, you know, let's let's really let's get as far away from that as possible. I, I have flashbacks to tenth grade geometry and, and Mr. Finch at Briarcliff High School, and it was a very <laughs> a very traumatic time for me in so many ways. Um, uh, but a lot of them had to do with the angles of triangles and all that other stuff. So let's yeah, uh, let's move on. Why, why is it that math teachers are always the meanest teachers? You know, I had a I had a teacher once in, in some stupid math course in high school, and she handed out our test results in reverse order of like the worst ones were first, and she and she walked up to me and looks at me and hands mine to me. It's like <laughs> so the whole class knows that I've made the worst grade in the class on this test. You know, well, I, I will say I will cool. say the fact that you call why are math teachers so stupid or mean. I didn't say stupid. I said mean. I, mean. So mean. I, I think probably is illustrated by the fact you're operating from the assumption they are mean because you don't know what they're talking about. They well, get frustrated because you don't know what they're talking about. It's a clearly, dynamic. I will well, once clearly, again refer that's, to that's the great right. philosopher of life, Jimmy Buffett, who did write a song back in 2000 called Math Sucks. And um, there we go. He, Me and Jimmy. He, he was right. Once again, <laughs> he likes gumbo and he thinks math sucks. So he's perfect. Oh, Kevin, by yes. the way, guess what? I went to S&D with Gene. I took Gina to S&D on the weekend. Yeah. And we both ordered gumbo. And uh, yeah. Um, I asked for some horseradish to put in the gumbo, um, because that's your little trick. And, uh, Gina, Gina followed suit and the waitress said to us, and this was, this was not one of the, the, the white people who have been there for 55 plus years. She said, Oh, I gotta try that. (laughs) So you, Kevin are a trendsetter. Yeah, that's me. Trendsetter. Uh, you can just look at Kevin in every area and say that is a trendsetter. (laughs) That's true. He's ahead of the curve. David, you're really coming around now. It's been it's been a long time, but you're finally coming around. I like that. Gonna, we're going to keep you on this podcast. Uh, all right, let's talk. Speaking of David and the podcast uh, and keeping people on it, uh, let, let's talk about the, the Super Bowl. Um, that was a really terrific game for oh, I don't know, almost four quarters, uh, and then the wow. ending was. It was a terrific terrible. game for fifty-eight minutes, Kevin. Yeah. Well, it was just it was just terrific, and then the ending really sucked. Speaking of mass sucks, that ending sucked. Uh, that was no way for such a great game to end. Uh, was you know I think I've seen people say that's the the best Super Bowl ever. It's hard for you to call it the best Super Bowl ever when it's such a terrible ending. You know, it's like watching a movie that this movie is really terrific, and then you come to some silly Donald Duck ending. You know, to the to it. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna make that proclamation it was the greatest Super Bowl ever. It was really fun up to that point. I was keeping my my whole family was interested in it. You know, it was just unbelievable. Usually they wander off and start, you know, walking around in the streets or something like that in the middle of a football game. But in this one, they really they, they hung with it all the way to the very end. But I, I think also that it, it, right the ending sucked so badly because it had been such a great game and it was set up for a dramatic finish. And because the last two minutes were such a letdown. And listen, I think we all agree that the penalty was a penalty. Um, I think even the players involved acknowledged it was a penalty. 
It just didn't feel like that's the way that game should have ended or turned. Guys? Yeah, I don't I, – listen, I'm not so sure. I'm kind of like with Greg Olson on that one. I'm, I'm not a big Greg Olson fan, but I'm with him on that one. It's like, hey, hold on to your whistle there, right? I mean, when it's it's got to be a really egregious foul at that point to me to call that because now you're just giving them the game. You just said, all right, here you go. I'm just handing it to you now because now it's the first down. Uh, and, and I just – you just can't do that. We, we all know that there are plenty of plays in the course of a football game. You could be blowing your whistle all the time, you know, fl- you know, throwing flags. It's not, it's just not, it's just, it wasn't necessary. I didn't think to do that. Uh, when in fact to the, I, I mean, I know he threw the ball to that receiver. And so, yes, that does make it you know, a little more problematic, but it was also, it sailed pretty far over his head as well. I just didn't feel like that was a play that was close enough to call it. Well, first, I would like to retract my comment that you are a trendsetter after you utter that Donald Duck ending. I'm not sure what demographic you were trying to pull in on this podcast by talking about Donald Duck endings. Not even sure what you mean. But no, no, it's interesting, right? Because uh, a penalty should be a penalty at whatever point of the game, right? But but there is a this this sense of oh come on in that moment don't let that override. But did that pass sail because of the initial pull? And and again, it was, it was a very clear foul. And the guy uh, the guy was very upfront about it, saying, "Oh, I was hoping they wouldn't call it." Uh, so he knew he was doing something there to get an edge. And um, it's all about consistency on how the game is called, right? And I didn't. I wasn't as bothered by it. But the other thing that's interesting is, you know, I think I think what everyone wanted and the way that game was going and the way both teams responded was, I go back to last year in the playoffs, the Kansas City-Buffalo game, where Josh Allen and Mahomes were just going back and forth, and it was basically whoever has the ball last is going to win this. Well, you had that penalty, and then you had a very smart play by a rookie running back and Pachenko to go down on the one yard line rather than to score. Um, boy, how tough was that for a, a seventh round rookie who can score what is probably still anyway going to be the winning touchdown to have the presence of mind to go, no, no, I'm going down here. We're going to run out the clock and, and, and kick a boring field goal to win it from a field goal kicker who actually missed earlier. So um, they played the 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 end of the game, the way it was intended to be played and the smart way to play it. But you just kind of wanted that extra element because it was already such a great game and and so much back and forth of, well, go ahead and score the touchdown there. Philadelphia gets the ball back with a minute and 10, 15 seconds, whatever. Let's see what they have. Let's see if they can tie this thing. Yeah, And and that's the element you just feel is a little bit missing at the end because of how it ended. Well, because it was set up, right, that either Mahomes yeah. scores a touchdown there and there's like a minute left for Jalen Hurts and the Eagles to answer or, you know, Jalen Hurts gets the ball back, you know, down a field goal and has a legitimate chance to, to go down and either tie the game and send it to overtime or or win it. And and it just that just didn't happen. So I've got a question for the two of you guys, and I, I think we kind of set this up a little bit last week, but – Again, you go back to the ankle and, and the Patrick Mahomes injury. 
for me, he's he enters the conversation now based on this performance and two Super Bowl championships. Is he in the top five all time quarterbacks? Are we ready to do well, that? I, I, I I'm not so sure I'm not. Well, here's the thing about Patrick in that game. It's like, how ridiculous is this whole thing with his ankle? Uh, you know, he, he goes off the field. He looks like his leg is coming off. I mean, his his foot is dangling when he's when he's uh, taking a step and taking the weight off of it. And he and goes it's the to other the leg from the ankle that he hurt it, you know, in the game preceding it. Yes. And, and he now goes over both ankles. <laughs> yeah. So now he's. Now he's sitting on the bench, writhing and putting his head on the uh, on the shoulder of an assistant there, and it's like, my gosh, what's going on here? Then the next thing you know, he's running back out of the field like Superman. I mean, I you know, I I, I just can't follow what goes on with this guy and uh, making he, a key scramble. And it, uh, listen, I know Greg Olson again, said it didn't look yeah. like there was anything wrong with his, his leg during that, but it definitely looked like there was something wrong with his leg during that. It looked like he was limping, but still, but still making up yards. Hey, a lot yeah. of great players have a flair for the dramatic, right? I mean, Emmett Smith, who hardly ever missed any games, he looked like he was dead at times, being dragged off the field, and then would come back and run for another seventy yards in the in the fourth quarter. Uh, how often have we seen LeBron James or or uh, other great players just lie on the court, and you go, "Oh, what's going on here?" And then they come back and dominate. So there is. I'm not minimizing the injury in the moment because, again, you know, this is a guy clearly. Patrick Mahomes was hobbled, uh, that, that left ankle, and it was a high ankle sprain, too. Let, you know, let's address that. This isn't a low ankle sprain. This is a high ankle sprain. And, and to come back as quickly and be as effective as he did in the AFC Championship game and make a key run late in that game to win it, uh, to make the run he did in this game when knew, you knew he still wasn't right with his left ankle, and now he had a le- right leg injury coming off the first half, uh, it, it, just a special player, and that's what that's what he is. And and Evan, you started it out by where is he in the argument? Certainly, you move the needle now, right? I mean, he's won, uh, he he's won one more Super Bowl than Aaron Rodgers, who was some would argue the best quarterback of this generation. One more than Drew Brees. Um, you know, uh, you know, he's now he, he's he's gone up into a, a you know Peyton Manning had two, but Peyton Manning second was at the end of his career when he was not nearly as effective of a quarterback. It was the team around him, and he just he really was a bus driver for his last one. But Patrick Mahomes is doing this now when he's the MVP of the league, the MVP of the Super Bowl in the same season. And, you, and this is interesting, too. You go back, you don't see many players who win the MVP of the regular season lead their team to the Super Bowl in the same year, and he's done it twice now. So he's certainly in that discussion. And now it's just how is this going to play out and how much higher is he going to go on the list? Kevin, you're, well, you're, the, you're the chairman of the Patrick Mahomes fan club, though I think I might challenge you because I like watching him so much. But where does he rank for you? Also, since you're the oldest, you have the best perspective. Yeah. Easily the oldest. Yeah, easily. I, I'm like two years older than David. Um, so, oh, yeah, look. There's no question that he's one of the top five quarterbacks ever. Now, you know, it, it, there is for, no question in your mind. Top five, no question in my mind. No, you don't. You don't win Super Bowls like this. You don't come back and win that game. You're down by ten points at halftime. You know, and come back and 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 win that game and and do it. Oh, you know, through all the the injury and everything else. I mean, you know, David brought up Aaron Rodgers. I've always thought that Aaron Rodgers was 
one of the two or three most talented quarterbacks ever to play the position. I don't, that doesn't mean that he is the best. I'm just saying he's the most talented, you know, the way he could spin the football. I mean, the guy's just phenomenal what he can do. And I still think that's probably true that he is. I, I think though, the thing about Aaron is you got too much of the head case. Uh, and, and with Patrick Mahomes, he just wants to win, you know, and, uh, and, and, and that's true of most quarterbacks. <laughs> I'm not ever sure with Aaron Rodgers exactly what it is that he wants. Uh, but from, from a pure talent standpoint and what he can do and how he can spend the football, how he can move, how he can throw different arm slots, all of that kind of stuff. You know, Aaron, uh, you, you know, Matthew Stafford can do a lot of that kind of stuff too, but he just can't win. He, he can't do what Patrick Mahomes does. Uh, so for the, for the total package, for everything you want in a quarterback, you know, uh, a guy who can lift the entire team, who can carry the team. This is always the complaint about Dak Prescott, right? He can't carry the team. He can't lift it. You know, yeah, uh, Patrick Mahomes can. He lost Tyreek Hill, the most dynamic wide receiver in the league, uh, after last year. And I thought, yeah, we'll see now what the, what happens with all this. How, how good is he going to be? Tyreek Hill was being mentioned in MVP voting, you know, this year, you know, and they lost that player, and they still won the Super Bowl. You know, uh, now he still does have Travis Kelsey, who is an all-world tight end. You know, we we talk a lot about Patrick. Uh, I, I think that, that that Kelsey has to 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 rate among the top five tight ends ever, right? So that oh, is I, a great. I put him a little have. higher now. I think. Well, you're right. Time. Maybe a little you higher know? than that. Well, uh, yeah, three, you don't least. want him to come after you saying, put some respect in your mouth. <laughs> That's <there."> right. But- <laughs> yeah, what was that all about? I was like, who didn't pick the Chiefs? You know that, they mean- know how disrespected they were all year. Come on, Kevin. I mean, come on. It's Let like, it go. Yeah, Acknowledge I mean, the obvious. I, I, the look, Chiefs I do think the Bengals and the, and the Bills became kind of more of the it teams, but I don't think anybody ever thought that the Kansas City Chiefs with Patrick Mahomes weren't, there. weren't, yeah. weren't capable of going to the Super Bowl. Here's another one real quick for you, Kevin, just to kind of so, so we can look at this a bit from the, the Cowboys lens looking at this game. Uh, you brought up Patrick Mahomes losing Tyreek Hill and still doing that. If you're a Cowboys fan, you're looking at that and saying, well, OK, here is why. Here's a difference. Dak Prescott can't do that. Dak Prescott loses Amari Cooper. And now what is everyone talking about? How they need to get another receiver. Patrick Mahomes loses him. And look at these guys he has at receiver. Or would any of them really have upgraded, you know, even the Cowboys team? None of them are close to what C.D. Lamb is. And so he was still able to win with that. Now flip that script and you go, oh, well, this is why Philadelphia is better than Dallas. They go out and they get Jalen Hurts, A.J. Brown. That's why Why in the world would Dallas let Amari Cooper go? So it's just interesting how uh, Amari Cooper, which is still a, a, a sore spot for many Cowboys fans here and, and someone they're still looking to replace in, in some form going forward, is really kind of a flashpoint off that game. And it shows you the difference at the quarterback position. And it really, not that there was any question, but it puts – it puts Dak Prescott in a clear camp where he is, right? He's not at a Patrick Mahomes, uh, one of the really truly elite quarterbacks in the league. He's more in the in the Jalen Hurts where, okay, we got to get this thing right around him. And look, we're going to see how Jalen Hurts plays long-term in this league because um, as much as he runs and the way he exposes himself, I don't know that he can play the same way uh, two to three years from now. Uh, but But we'll see. 
We'll see. I, I think also, uh, you know, and I thought Jalen played great that game. In some ways, oh, he, he outplayed uh, Patrick Mahomes, except for the fact that he dropped that football and he got returned for a touchdown. And that's well, the you can't minimize game. that because at that point of the game, if they would have gone and scored there, and you know they had a ten point lead early, if that would have been increased. Would Kansas City have been as patient with the run game? Would they become one-dimensional earlier? And, and then that would have allowed Philadelphia's pass rush to get in the game. The other thing to me that made this game so so wonderful was each quarterback and each team responded at the exact moment they had to or this game would have gotten away from them and gone in a different direction. Um, you know, if, if, if that fumble recovery hadn't happened when it did – I don't know that Kansas City would have been able to come back. As it was, you still had to have Mahomes lead that drive to open the third quarter, or certainly the second half would have played out differently. Yeah, it's been an interesting uh, football season. It came to an end. Kind of sorry to see it go after that kind of finish. Uh, it was really fun in, in the playoffs and watching that, right up to that last minute anyway. Uh, so uh, anyway, uh, we'll see where the, the Cowboys go. We, we're we're going to talk about it some, I think, next week. We're uh, some of the silly things that uh, the Jones has said about uh, the Eagles uh, being in it just for the short term and uh, going all in, kind of like they were the Rams all of a sudden, uh, yeah. which sounds kind of ridiculous when your quarterback is like, what, four years younger? Uh, yeah, the, and the quarterback, quarterback you haven't played, yeah. He's still on his first uh, contract and has gone to a Super Bowl. Yeah, yeah, that's silliness. But uh, we'll get to that next time. We've, we've run out of room. We appreciate everybody sticking with us for all of this. Hope you'll come back next week, and we'll have even more to talk about then. Uh, we'll be inevitably uh, embedded with the Rangers out there, and we'll have all the information on us. So from everybody in here to everybody out there, thanks, and we'll see you next time. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you.